when I interviewed um, to come to Somerset in 2001, one of the people on the committee um, that uh, interviewed me was, uh, the first thing I noticed about him was that he was rather tall, a lot taller than me. I'm, I'm not necessarily the shortest person in the world, but I found out quickly that I'm also not the tallest uh, person in the world, definitely not the tallest person in this church. And so um, in high school and uh, college and seminary, I, one of my hobbies outside of studying and sometimes in place of studying, oftentimes in place of studying, I'm fortunate for you, that was before seminary, um, was playing basketball. And I, I was by no means the greatest basketball player in the world, and most of you know that who have played with me. But I, I felt like I could hold my own, you know. And so um, when I met Mark Fothergill, I was thinking, hey, I'd like to play with that guy, you know, and just see. And uh, so I spent the rest of the time, once I came here, trying to talk him into playing, and he wouldn't ever play. And so I, I think maybe from that time until like 2004, 2005, I asked him over and over to play with us on Sunday night. Well, he finally played with us one night. And um, I, I don't remember if he was guarding me. I, I, you'll know why. I don't remember that in a minute. Um, but we were playing, and we came. The ball, I got the ball down low. We weren't on the same team. I know that. I got the ball down low and kind of got a little up and under on him and put it in. And, uh, I, you know, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, yeah. And it was kind of early on, you know. And he, he laughed, and he looked at me, and he goes, you got me on that one. I'll give it to you. But it won't happen again. <laughs> and um, it didn't. Uh, I, don't, I don't really know what happened the rest of that night, to be honest with you. All I know is that I incurred the wrath of a Maryland Turpin named Mark Fothergill, and um, I have blocked out the rest of that night from my memory. Uh, what he said would not happen, did not happen, and he also has not played since then. I, don't, I think I finally invited him to play basketball again about two weeks ago. I've, I've got my nerve up finally. As we read the book of Nahum, we get a similar message from God. In Nahum 1, verse 9, God says, Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. It will not rise up twice. You may have caused a little distress, that one. It won't happen again. It won't happen again. In verse 14, to the king, God says, Your name will no longer be perpetuated. In verse 15 of chapter 1, God says, Never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. It's over. It's final. You see, last week, Pastor Scott talked about the fact that, that God is not blind to the evil and the suffering and the injustice in our world. And we're going to continue that thought tonight because not only is he not blind to it, but he responds accordingly to it. He, he's not one who just sees evil and then does nothing about it. God, God is a God who sees evil and he responds appropriately. So here's the key question for us tonight. What does this have to do with us? What does it have to do with us? When we read Nahum chapter 2, what does this have to do? What, what does it really mean for me in my life? I would say there's few of you sitting here tonight who would who would classify yourselves, or even that the rest of us would classify as evil or as an oppressive person. Hopefully none of us. So, so what does this have to do with us? In order to answer this question, this is what we're going to do tonight. First, we're going to define what do we mean when we refer to God's wrath? What, what, are, we, what are we talking about in referring to God's wrath? Then we're going to look at Nahum chapter 2, and we're just going to walk through Nahum chapter 2 and look at an example of God's wrath carried out. 
And then we'll come back around and discuss what does this have to do with each one of us seated in this, seated in this sanctuary tonight. So first, how do we define God's wrath? What is God's wrath? If you look up in Webster's Dictionary, it's defined in two ways. One, it is violent anger, indignation, rage, or fury. The second way that Webster defined it was the just punishment of an offense or a crime. So the question is tonight, what does this mean in reference to God? What, what is the wrath of God? What does it mean? Is God's wrath just? Or is it, is it likened more to a raging man who's lost control of his anger and he just takes out his wrath and his rage and his anger on anyone that comes in sight? What is the wrath of God? Here's what we need to realize. That when we talk about the wrath of God, it is tied to who God is. Our understanding and the justness of God's wrath rests in his character. It rests in his character. You can't set God's wrath apart from who God is. And ultimately, most importantly, the, the key aspect of that for when we think about God's wrath is what we've already sung of tonight. That God is holy. If you if you like, flip over to Psalm 99 with me quickly. If not, just listen to me. I'll read it to you. Psalm 99, the first five verses. Listen to the description of who God is. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is exalted above all the peoples. And let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Now listen to this, verse 4. The strength of the king loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. If we were to go on and read the rest of that psalm, it, it concludes by that statement. Three times in Psalm 99, God is declared to be holy. I Meaning God is perfect. He is, he is other. He's completely different than we are as sinners. There is no sin in him. There is no evil in him. To the core of who God is, he is holy. He is holy. He is awesome. His great name is awesome. It says he loves justice. He establishes equity. He executes justice. And he is righteous. God is holy. He is pure. He is perfect. So when we talk about God's wrath, we know that when God executes his wrath, he cannot violate who he is. He cannot violate who he is. All he does is holy. That means when he executes wrath, it is holy wrath. It is just wrath. Nahum understood the same thing. He understood that you can't separate God's character and you must not separate God's character from God's actions because it guards us and it helps us to know the, the justifiableness of his actions, the holiness of his actions. We remember that God is holy. So Nahum starts, we've already studied a few weeks ago. He starts chapter 1 with what? A hymn of praise to God for who he is. Look who God leads Nahum to remind the people of who he is. In verse 2 of chapter 1 in Nahum, God is jealous. He's jealous. He's a jealous and avenging God. In verse 3, he's slow to anger and he's great in power. Later on in verse 3, he says that he does not leave the guilty unpunished, meaning he is just. He will punish the guilty. 
then down in verse 7, the Lord is good. The Lord is good. He is altogether good. So as we start tonight and we think about God's wrath, God's wrath is couched in his character. It's couched in his holiness. It's couched in his goodness. It's couched in his righteousness and his justness. So that God's wrath is his holy response to the offense of sin against him. That's God's wrath. It's his holy response to the offense of sin against who he is. When we sin, we violate the character of God. We transgress against God. And the just and holy response of that is wrath. Turn with me, if you're not, or if you're not already there, to Nahum. To Nahum. What we're going to see in chapter 2 is that God's wrath is something we want no part of. We want no part of it. I want to back up one verse into chapter 1, verse 15, and read this together as we start into the text tonight. God's word says this in Nahum 1, verse 15. Behold, on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feast, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. Now we remember, if you were here last week, remember that this is spoken in certainty about a future event. Nahum is telling about the destruction of Nineveh that has not yet happened. He's foretelling this. He's prophesying it. As God has led him to see it and understand it and get a glimpse of what would happen, the destruction of Nineveh, he is prophesying of this event. He says, Behold, on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news. The people are to look to the hills. They're to look to the hills as though they are looking for a messenger that's coming with good news in times of war. They would look, and, and, and upon the hills they would look, and they'd be watching and watching, and here comes a runner, and the first thing they want to know is, it, what does the runner have to say? And as the runner approached, they would understand that the runner approaches with good news of God's victory in this instance. Here's, here's why it's important for us to start here and remember this. Is that chapter 2 continues the prophecy here. And if we go on throughout history... We learn that in 612 B.C., everything that Nahum spoke came to be. So everything that Nahum said in, in verse 15, he says, Behold, behold on the mountains the feet of one who, gives news, who, who, who brings good news, who announces peace. That would happen. What we read in a, in a moment of chapter 2, that will happen. And the truth is this, is that every time we read in Scripture... A verse like this, and then what we will read in a moment in chapter 2, when we read of these things, that at the time Nahum wrote, he was writing, prophesying of what God led him to write, and prophesying of something that would happen in the future. And then we see that that was worked out in the future. We see that God was faithful to his word. What he said would happen, happened. And the reality is that we need to understand that when we read that, it just adds an enormous amount of credibility and weight and magnitude to the words of Christ. Because we've seen that God is faithful. We've seen that he said, I will destroy Nineveh, and he did it. We've seen that. We know that. And we saw him say it beforehand, and then we saw it carried out. So we understand then, in light of that, that there's a lot of weight when Christ says something like, I will return. I will return for my people. The whole, the whole, the whole of John's revelation 
has added weight and meaning because we know of God's faithfulness in the past to keep his word. The people may not have remembered it or understood it. The people may not have understood fully what Nahum was saying, and I'm sure they were going, really, God? I, I, I don't know. I mean, Nineveh's huge, Assyria's so oppressive, they're brutal. They're brutal. We, we've been here so long, are you really going to save us from them? This is a, a, a time of questioning, I'm sure. It's a, a crisis of faith for the people if we put ourselves in their shoes. They trusted him. They saw that God was faithful to his word. Are we then living in light of what God has promised? Or do you live as though he will not do what he has promised? I mean, seriously, ask yourself that question. Do you live in light of what God has said? Do you live trusting that what he has said he's going to carry out? That the promises he spoke in Scripture, he will carry those out? He will be faithful to his word. He will be faithful to do what he's said he will do. Man, I, I just pray that, that we would never presume on God's mercy so much. That, that, we would, that we would live ignorant of the fact that God is currently holding his wrath back on lost sinners. Do we realize that God is completely just if he returned at this moment and sent every sinner who lives outside of Christ, some of you in here tonight, to hell. He is completely just and righteous and holy in doing that. But by His mercy, by His mercy, He is withholding that wrath. He's withholding that wrath. Are we living in light of that? Read with me the first two verses of Nahum chapter 2. Nahum says this, The one who scatters has come up against you. Man the fortress, watch the road, strengthen your back, summon all your strength. For the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob, like the splendor of Israel, even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches. The Assyrians, who had so often scattered and brutally murdered those whom they conquered, now has the one who scatters coming against them. So often if they come out and they've inflicted fear upon others, now the call is you need to summon all your strength and you need to be prepared because we're about to bring it. The one who scatters is coming upon you and he is going to restore the splendor of his people and guess who's in the way of him doing that? You are. Nineveh, you are in the way. The Lord Almighty is prepared to march into battle. War is upon you. Blood will be shed and his sword is brandished. He's coming. And he's going to come in power and he's going to come in might. This week as I prayed over this and read it, I, I couldn't help but remember what John wrote in Revelation 19. In Revelation 19 we hear of this. Listen, just listen to this. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in his righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. 
And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, are following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's the same picture, isn't it? In Nahum, the prophet speaks and says, Nineveh, there is a mighty warrior God coming. He's the one who scatters, and he's coming upon you. He's bringing war upon you. And God leads John to see, gives him a glimpse in Revelation of Jesus, the mighty warrior coming in victory to rule with an iron rod and to defeat the nations in the fierce wrath of God. God has spoken. He's demonstrated his wrath in the past and he's warned us of his wrath in the future. Do we live in light of that? In verse 3, chapter 2, the shields of his mighty men are colored red. The warriors are dressed in scarlet. The chariots are enveloped in flashing steel. When he is prepared to march and the cypress spears are brandished, the chariots race madly, race madly in the streets. They rush wildly in the squares. Their appearance is like torches. They dash to and fro like lightning flashes. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their march. They hurry to her wall and the mantlet is set up. The gates of the rivers are opened and the palace is dissolved. It is fixed. She is stripped. She is carried away and her handmaids are moaning like the sound of doves beating on their breasts. This passage, scholars aren't really certain if it was written, who it was written to. Is it describing the army of God coming or is it describing what, what's going on inside the city walls of Nineveh? Here's what is certain. War is about to be upon Nineveh. War is about to be upon the mighty country of Assyria. And it's not occurring on account of their will. It's not a result of their action. It's not from their hand. They're not bringing it. War is being brought upon them. War is being brought to their streets. Those who were conquerors are about to be conquered. It makes me think of as a kid, I, one of my favorite tapes I ever had as a kid is a VCR tape. Some of you have heard of those. It, it, was, a, it was a tape from Sports Illustrated, and it, it was I, I, Champions or something like that was the name of it. I had a segment with Mike Tyson in there, and I'm not going to go into what my opinions on Mike Tyson or anything are tonight, but I can tell you this. He, he was cold-hearted in the, in the cage or in the, the ring. And that tape, when I would watch it, I would think, here come these guys, and they would come out, and these are guys that had conquered and beat men all over the nation, all over the world. They had conquered, they had ruled, they had inflicted fear and pain in men in a boxing ring. And they walked in to Mike Tyson, and when the bell rang, Mike Tyson tore them to shreds. War was upon them, and they didn't know how to handle it. He was ruthless. That's nothing compared to God. Assyria had conquered nations. Assyria had inflicted evil and pain, brutality, that we can't speak of here. But God was about to bring war upon them like they had never known before. Chaos was about to fill their streets. God was the aggressor. They weren't. 
and it was coming. Look at verse 4. The chariots raced madly in the streets. They rushed wildly in the squares. Their appearance is like torches. They dashed to and fro like lightning flashes. They're all over the place. Chaos is mounting. It's abounding. Then in verse 6, he says, The gates of the rivers are open and the palaces dissolved. Remember, when is he speaking of this? Is he saying, hey, remember when the gates of the river were open and the palace was dissolved? Was that what he was saying? No. He said, listen, this is what God's going to do. The gates of the river will be open and the palace is going to be dissolved. you know what happened in 612? Do you know what happened? The waters of the Tigris River were diverted. How did Nineveh fall? The waters of the river were diverted and the city was flooded. How awesome is God? How awesome is he? To write this years in advance, say the city will be flooded, the gates will be open, the palace will be dissolved. How does Nineveh fall? Just as he said. Just as he said. Praise God. Praise God. He's faithful to his word. He's faithful to his word. Verse 8. Though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days, now they are fleeing. Stop, stop, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold, for there is no limit to the treasure, wealth from every kind of desirable object. She is emptied. Yes, she is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting and knees knocking. Also anguish is in the whole body, and all their faces are grown pale. Where is the den of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion, lioness, and lion's cub prowled with nothing to disturb them. The lion tore enough for his cubs and killed enough for his lionesses and filled his lairs with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Nineveh had once been like a pool of water. It had been prosperous. It had been abounding. But now it would be filled with fear. Verses 8 and 9. It's going to be utterly plundered and ransacked plunder the silver the gold there's no limit to the treasure there will be nothing left unturned every closet opened every drawer pulled out every possession you own thrown in the streets and pilfered everything will be plundered everything destroyed there is no limit there is nothing that is not within reach everything will be destroyed utter fear would overtake the people Utter fear. Hearts melting. Knees knocking. Anguish in the whole body. All their faces growing pale. That is not a pretty sight. When God's chosen instrument of wrath came upon Nineveh, it was not something they enjoyed. It was not something they looked past. It was not something they just endured. It was something that desolated them. In verse 11 and 12, Nahum starts to mock the Ninevites. He starts to mock them. Because the kings of Nineveh often depicted themselves on reliefs as lions. So the, the king Ashurnasurpal stated this. He says, I am lion brave. And King Sennacherib boasted, like a lion I raged, speaking of their conquest. But where now? Where now is that great den? Nahum asked. Where? Where is the den of lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Why aren't you brave like a lion anymore? Why aren't you raging and roaring like a lion? Why? Because God is bringing desolation on you. He is bringing wrath upon you. It's over. War is upon you and you will not stand. Your reign is over. The authority and dominion of the Assyrians who compared themselves to the king of beasts were about to be rendered as nothing but a mere 
beast. God was coming. God was coming. In holy, just, terrible wrath, God is coming. Listen to verse 13. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn up her chariots and smoke. A sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the land, and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. God speaks now. Behold, I am against you. This should strike terror in the hearts of anyone who hears it. Terror that the Almighty God would look to you and say, I am against you. I'm against you. I am almighty. I am holy. I am sovereign. There's no one like me, and I'm against you. I'm against you. God's wrath is a terrible sight. It's a terrible sight. Can you fathom the reality of his wrath being enacted upon you? Can you fathom what it would be like to be Nineveh, the recipient of God's full, holy, just, terrible wrath? Can you imagine that? It's not pretty, but it shows us how holy he is. How holy he is in the way he responds to sin against him. Why would God show wrath? Because God shows himself to be glorious and holy in all aspects. And he cannot stand sin. See, we sit tonight thankful that God's wrath has not been turned upon us, don't we? We sit at a perceived distance from it. Or do we? Is it really that far from us? Are we really that far from God's wrath? This is what you need to understand. As much as it pains me to say this, God has revealed in His Word that not only is He against the Ninevites and the Assyrians, He's against every sinner who sins against him and stands outside of the righteousness of Christ. Unbeliever, do you know that you stand at enmity with God? Do you know that in Matthew 12, 30, Jesus said that if you're not for God, you're against God? Do you know that Romans 5, 10 refers to those who have not been reconciled to God as being enemies of God? Do you know that James 4, 4 says that a friend of the world is an enemy of God? Do you know that Romans 2, 5 says that every day you live in your sin, you're storing up wrath for yourself from God Almighty. Do you know this? What are you to do? What are you to do? God is against you. You're at enmity with God. It's not an issue of I go to church, I'm a good kid, I'm a good guy, I'm, I'm nice. That's not the issue the issue is if you're outside of Christ, if you have not confessed Christ, then you stand as an object of his wrath. That's the issue. He's withholding. He's showing his goodness by withholding his wrath, by his mercy. But I don't know when that will end. Nineveh gives us a glimpse of God's wrath, but it's just a glimpse in light of the eternal torment and torture and punishment of hell. You must know that. You must know that. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. 
No one can turn back the wrath of God. No one can turn back the wrath of God. That doesn't sound good, does it? Here's the good news. Except God himself. No one can turn back the wrath of God except God himself. That's the beauty and the glory of the cross. That's what we see displayed. So Nineveh was a dominant foe, Assyria, a dominant foe that Judah was enslaved to. They had no hope of freeing themselves. But you, sinner, are the same. You're enslaved to sin and you have no hope of freeing yourself. Nahum did not call the people to gather up their mighty men and save themselves. The gospel does not call you to gather up your good deeds and save yourselves either. Nahum shouted, he declared, Behold, upon the mountains the feet of he who brings good news. The gospel declares, Behold, upon Calvary the pierced feet of he who is the good news. God poured out his wrath on Nineveh, and he redeemed Judah. God poured out his wrath on his son and redeemed all who would repent and trust in him. Will you repent of your sins tonight and trust him? You may be the Sunday night crowd, but they are lost in this room. Will you repent and turn to Christ tonight? Will you experience and know the joy of knowing that Jesus has taken the full wrath of God that you deserve? And will you stand and sing with us the next time we sing it? Oh, the wondrous cross. Oh, I am a debtor to mercy. Oh, the power of the cross. Will you do that? Will you follow Christ, believer? What does God's wrath have to do with you? What's it have to do with you? One thing it has to do is it, it just fuels our worship, doesn't it? Because you can stand with me and say, in my place condemned, he stood. You can stand and worship, oh, the wondrous cross. Oh, the power of the cross that God's wrath poured out and displayed in Nineveh and poured out on sin. will be absorbed and taken by Christ in my place as my substitute. But... What about the people across that street? What about the people you work with? What about your coworkers, your schoolmates? What about your family members? Do you live in light of the fact that they, according to Scripture, are at enmity with God? That they're storing up wrath for themselves? Does that drive you to share the gospel? Does it drive you to serve them in love? Does it drive you to hit your knees and pray passionate prayers for their salvation? Have you announced the good news to them? Behold, upon Calvary, the pierced feet of he who is the good news. See, we don't, we don't plan and host a block party to convince people that Grace Baptist is a great church. We don't set aside Sunday night so that one of us don't have to preach. We don't do that so that we can, hey, let's have some horses and inflatable games. Let's have a grand old time. You know why we do that? We do that because we understand that there are people living across that street who are storing up wrath for themselves every day. And they don't know it. 
We do that knowing that our neighbors are in need of the gospel. And praise God that he's tearing right now, that he's showing mercy and he's holding back his wrath. But we have block parties because we're not going to presume that he's going to do that for years. We understand that he may return. And when he returns, those outside of Christ are in for a terrible day. And God's love compels us to take the gospel to them. So next week is more than a fun night at Grace Baptist Church. It's more than a time of inflatables. It's more than a time where we're not in this sanctuary. It's a time where we go and we try to share the good news. And we try to point people to Calvary. We point people to the cross of Christ. My prayer and my plea tonight is that the terror of God's wrath would drive some of you to repent and trust Christ as your Lord and your Savior. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and if, if you, if that's you, if you say, I am tired of living in my sin, I repent, I turn from my sins, and I'm trusting Jesus Christ as my Savior and my Lord. And after we pray and we dismiss after our time of meeting, I want you to come talk to me or one of the pastors, your parent, your friend, whoever you came with, someone sitting beside you, you know they're a Christian, talk to them. Trust Christ tonight. Repent and believe. Believers, my prayer is that the wrath of God and the love and His grace and mercy He's displayed in our lives would compel us to boldly take the gospel at a block party, at the office, in our neighborhood, at our school, at our coffee shops. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the words of Nahum. We thank you for the example of your wrath poured out upon sin. God, we pray tonight for those who are gathered among us who do not know you, who stand at enmity with you. God, we pray that you would bring new life to their hearts, grant them faith, and that they would repent and trust in you, God. Give them faith, Lord. Give them faith. Now, for those of us in here tonight who are your people, God, let us not presume upon your mercy, God. Let us not take it for granted and think that we always have tomorrow. And let us see people for who they are. Sinners in need of your grace and your mercy. God, compel us by your love to boldly proclaim the truth of the gospel and to direct people to the cross of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.